All right, Rebecca, come on up. Y'all sit down. Bless your name's Rebecca. I guess that could be confusing for three of you in the room, but hey, everybody, this is Rebecca Zappi, and Rebecca with uh, Doug and Anna Ottersberg, who are right now in Mexico with their family, are going to be leaving this week on Thursday, is that right? On Thursday, to go and represent all of us, all of you all, in Havana, Cuba. We are not only those who receive gifts, but we send our gifts to the the world, so we're sending these three to go down and celebrate with representatives from other sister churches and church plants in Havana what the Lord has done. They, they asked us, uh, this denomination, Los Pinos Nuevos, Pachi, and then the, the church planter we work with, Frank and his wife Ari, they said, send us some folks because we're gathering as many people as we can, sister church partners, to have a big celebration in Havana to give glory to God about all that he has done down there. And so I told Rebecca, you are going to be my opening sermon illustration. And instead of doing a a pastoral prayer, I had a 17-minute pastoral prayer that I cut out. Uh, We decided we would just pray for Rebecca and for Doug and Anna and for our brothers and sisters in in Cuba. You know, we have a lot of first world problems here. Uh, Just heard recently that they, they were wondering, okay, we have a lot of people coming down. We need to make sure we have enough food. Not that we have enough money to buy food, but that literally we can find enough food to be able to provide for these folks that are, that are coming. So as you, as you think of Rebecca and Doug and Anna and the work that God is doing in Cuba and that he's doing here, pray for them. And let's, let's pray now for her and for the trip. So Father, we just thank you and praise you for Doug and Anna and Rebecca and their willingness to go we know that they don't want any, any glory for it at all. Lord, it's, it's all because of you and through you and your provision. But I pray as you send Rebecca and Doug and Anna to go and be with our family in Havana, that they would be greatly encouraged. That even though they find themselves and we find ourselves often like, like those who feel like we're on trial by the world, Or maybe we find ourselves like Peter, full of fear and lacking in courage. Maybe all the things around us and the world around us, even our own bodies thwarting us sometimes, Lord, maybe these things just feel like too much. But because of you, we have hope. We know that the mission you have begun, you will finish. And so, Lord, bless Rebecca as she goes. And bless everyone in Havana as they celebrate the great work, God, that you have done, are doing, and will do on that island. Even even in a place where sort of a a naturalist, Marxist, communist view of the world, an atheist view of the world has been imparted to so many from a young age, the church is spreading like wildfire because there is hunger for something bigger than the all-powerful benevolent state, which has time and time again proven itself to be a, you know, a failed Messiah at best. You alone are the Savior, Jesus. So we look to you as we pray these things and pray over and for Rebecca and for the Ottersbergs. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Rebecca. We bless you. We bless you. Have a great trip. What time's your flight leave on Thursday? Uh, 2.45. 2.45. Okay, y'all get out your phone and put that in your calendar so you can be praying at 2.45 for everybody. Well, What a weird way to start a sermon. And yet, 
extremely appropriate because as we're in this passion narrative, this final week of the life of Jesus, it's all about mission. It's all about mission. It's all about the Father's mission through the Son, by the Spirit, for the world, for you. Can you imagine these ancient Near Eastern, you know, nomadic wandering Semites, the Jews, these nobodies, out of whom comes the Messiah of God. Can you imagine what they would have thought if we had said, yeah, you know, in, in a couple thousand years and a couple thousand miles away, there'll be a bunch of people who love Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, in a place called Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so as we come to the end of Mark 14 and these two trials, the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter, we come to two, two trials, two courtroom scenes, Two defendants, Jesus and Peter, we must remember that it is all about the mission of God. Because of what Jesus does here, and because of Peter, because of who Peter is here, because of those two things, we are not only those who are called to the grace of God, but sent to the world to bring the grace of God. Wherever you go, there is a mini ambassador, a mini embassy, a mini temple that brings with it good news. This is why Jesus came. Our text, this is why Jesus came. To state it another way and to quote Pastor uh, John Piper here, mission exists because there are places in the wor world where worship still doesn't. And God is jealous for his glory, for his children. He is jealous to call his children to himself that they might worship him and be made whole and renewed and redeemed Fully human, fully known, and fully loved through Jesus, his son. So mission exists, Cuba trips exist, because there are places in the world where worship still doesn't, and God is jealous for his glory. And another way of saying that, in a particular way, is he is jealous to see himself glorified through the bringing to himself of his children, who he has called from before the foundation of the world. And if our text shows us anything, it's that God is willing, through his son, to pay the ultimate cost to accomplish the mission that he set out to accomplish, again, from before the creation of the world. So to set the stage here, we're at the end of Mark chapter 14. Again, two trials and two sides of denial. The religious powers that be denying the Son of God and Peter denying the Son of God. Jesus is on the one hand wrongfully tried, in this debacle of a courtroom scene. And yet Peter, who is brought to trial by a little sweet servant girl, bless her heart, just like all the kiddos you saw on the wall, utterly fails and denies the Lord. Now these are two sides. Don't miss this because this is Mark's contrast. This is why we're taking the text together. It's a long text. Why do it on one Sunday? Because there's a contrast here. Two sides of the same coin of our deepest human need and propensity to sin. And by sin, I don't just mean you did a naughty thing. I mean, you are in the first Adam, born in a nature of sin, helpless and hopeless unless Christ saves you. And that nature of sin, two things, wants to be its own God like the religious rulers and powers, and also is deeply afraid of being known and exposed, driven by fear and self-protection, like Peter is in our text. 
So how do we get here? Just by way of reminder, Jesus has been outside of Jerusalem. He came in on a triumphal entry. This begins the Passion Week. His first couple days are spent in the temple. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever considered this before. It's, it's hit me harder this time preaching through the Passion narrative. But Jesus' work and words and actions in the temple are the, the linchpin of all of this. Indeed, they're the linchpin of why the Jews and this council of the Sanhedrin thought that they could arrest him, charge him with blasphemy, a capital crime, and then bring him next week, as we'll see, to Pilate as one who claimed to be a king. So he goes into the temple and he says, all this whole system of religiosity, first of all, it's all about me. I am the cornerstone of the new and true and greater temple, not made by stones, but living stones, people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. And I'm here to tear down this old system and put a new one in its place that isn't just about a geopolitical ethnic people, although I will continue to love them. It's about me bringing in a remnant, an inheritance, a people from the whole world. This causes the religious authorities to be enraged. And yet we move toward the Passover. They share the Lord's Supper. Jesus goes back out of the cities in the garden. He's deserted by his closest friends. And yet he is determined in his mission. This is why he came. He's given the kiss of death from Judas. And two weeks ago, or what was it, like five months ago? When was the last time we did this? The last time we were in Mark, you remember there's the naked dude that runs away at the end. I'm going to make that my life verse, I think. Uh, because I just love that this guy is like, he comes out, he's got his linen on, he sees what's going on, and he runs away in the garden, just like Adam and Eve did in the first garden, naked and ashamed. And what is Jesus, if he's the second Adam, going to do about it? This brings us to the continuing mission of the Christ in our text. And I want to notice, I want to look at three things as we contrast the Sanhedrin, the council, and Peter, and then look to Jesus. Here are the three uh, You might want to write these down because I don't go super logically. It's more like Jackson Pollock. So, you know, you got to stand back and look at it and then you'll see it. But here's the three points. A kangaroo court, a flimsy defendant, the true and just judge. A kangaroo court, a flimsy defendant, two sides of the same Adamic coin of power and fear, and then the true and just judge. So first, a kangaroo court. Verse 55 begins... The trial. Now. That word now is there for emphasis. In verse 55, this is the first trial where the religious authorities and powers, and we all would have done the same thing, so don't get prideful about it, deny Jesus. Jesus comes before judges and rulers who condemn him because he is exactly what they are not expecting and not wanting the Messiah to be, and that's us. We want the big, tall, strong, kind of like me, powerful, muscular, right? No, we want King Saul. You don't want David. You love the little David stories, and so do I. Bless his heart. But no, that's not who you want. You want the one that looks like a leader, that fulfills our expectations of power, because that gives us a sense of one of my favorite C words, control. Jesus is brought before man's control, religiosity, power, false expectation, and as he is, he is denied. Now, who is he brought before? The Sanhedrin, they would have been the premier Jewish council in that day. 
The high priest ruled over the Sanhedrin, 70 plus members. You had chief priests, elders, and scribes. This is a pop-up courtroom. And it's, it's worth noting that Jewish uh, jurisprudence was highly advanced. And, and I think John will hit on this next week, but, but so was, was Roman. Um, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the Jews of all people had an unbelievably developed and advanced system of checks and balances in their courtroom. They wanted there to be evidence. You needed to have witnesses. Justice was a big deal to them because it was a big deal to God. And what we see in our text is that justice is basically tossed out the window. So the high priest in those days was a man named Caiaphas that you've heard of. He was the most powerful Jew in Jerusalem and Judea. His tenure as high priest lasted from about 18 to 36 AD, so it fits right in with the timeline of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we should note a few things about this trial. First of all, it happens at Caiaphas's house. This is not a normal place for a trial. Okay, this is a rash decision about who can we get together in the middle of the night. They, they had several places, but particularly one near the temple where they would hold just Jewish trials. So now we have a trial in a home. That was illegal, according to their own laws. It's at night. That's illegal, right? You, this isn't how you want the justice system to operate. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch of us, uh, even this morning, who are following everything that happened in Idaho. I, Idaho? I'm sorry. The murder of these four college students, I'm not going to say anything about it other than to say they have now have a suspect in custody. They released this probable cause affidavit. I don't know what those words mean, except to say it's stuff that kind of adds up that justified their arresting this guy. And you read it and you're like, he's done. I mean, that's what I thought. But it is very good, very good that we exist in a legal system that says you are actually innocent until in a court of law, by a jury of your peers, you are proven guilty. The opposite is happening here. In a home, at night. In fact, it's the only time in recorded Jewish history where these two things happened in this way. There's so much wrong here. They are breaking their own laws. They're not allowed to do this. They're not allowed to do it near a Sabbath or a feast day. And for capital crimes, eyewitnesses, two at least, are required. And they had within their legal code, wisely, a rule that if you, if you made a, a decision in the affirmative on a capital crime, a sentence of death, you had to at least come back the next day. Isn't this smart? This is why you shouldn't send that email. Just sleep on it, okay? Just sleep on it before you send that email. And then the next day, if you think that's the right thing to do, still don't send it. Go talk to the person face to face. But they had that in their law. You, you, had, you couldn't make rash judgments. You had to meet the next day before a final verdict was delivered. None of that is happening here. They are out for blood, and they have predetermined that Jesus is guilty. What's more, their testimony does not agree. Jesus is misquoted. The closest thing we get to his words about the temple being torn down are in the book of John, but he doesn't say what they say. He says something quite different. And so these false witnesses, Mark records in the Greek with two beautiful words, pseudo-marturion, right? Think of martyr or witness, false martyrs. They are, as it were, putting themselves to death by their own perjury. Their motives are clear. So they come to Jesus with questions. Who are you? What is this about? But he is silent. 
And as most scholars wisely point out, the silence of Jesus isn't because of his fear, but fulfillment. It's not fear, but fulfillment. Here, Jesus is indeed fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53. And I would, I would encourage you to go back this week, get yourself some nice coffee or tea, sit down and open your Bible to Isaiah 53 and just read in there the unbelievable specificity of what had to happen to the Messiah of God, the suffering servant of God, and then return to Mark's passion narrative and stand in awe. Isaiah 53 says he doesn't say anything. He's like a sheep who is led to the slaughter silently. And yet the high priest continues to ask. At this point, assumably he is agitated, and he finally gets to the real question, who are you? And it's two questions. Not sure if you noticed that. The first is, are you the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel? And again, you have to remember at that time, they're thinking about Jewish Braveheart in a Jew kilt with some blue face paint and a huge sword to obliterate the Romans, get them out of the oppression and slavery of the second exile under the Romans. That's what they had in mind. The second question is, are you the son of the blessed one? Now, you know this, but blessed one is a, a euphemism for Yahweh or for God. They wouldn't want to say the word, and so they would use what is referred to as a circumlocution, like, you know, circumscribed to go around locution, speech, a way of speech that doesn't say God's name, but the referent, which is being referred to, is actually God himself. So are you the Messiah and are you the son of God? These are the two questions that Caiaphas asks Jesus. He is here in no way being unclear. They've moved past all these witnesses and the testimony and the disagreement and the ambiguity. Now we're down to brass tacks. And Jesus says, what? I am. And without making a mountain out of a molehill, but it's actually not a molehill, it's more like a hill, but not a mountain. Most scholars do agree that yes, Jesus is using that Greek construction, ego, me, I am, that all of his hearers, Mark's hearers and the Jewish hearers would have understood as Jesus said this in Aramaic, that he's referencing the holy and divine name of God. And not only does, does he say, yeah, I'm the Christ, I am, but then he goes on to quote Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110 and say, not only am I God, Yahweh, but I am the true and greater judge of Israel and the world. What Jesus does in answering these two questions is he paints a full and total picture of what Messiah really is. Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 using both of these constructs, would have been akin to Jesus putting in a very tight packet those two Old Testament texts, an answer to every single charge that was brought against him. Are you a prophet? Yes. Are you the judge? Yes. Are you the Messiah? Yes. Will you in your future glory be vindicated? Yes. You will see me coming on the clouds. Daniel 7, a prophecy about the final and forever coming of the king and his kingdom to bring just judgment over the whole earth. And Jesus at night in the kangaroo court says, that's me. All of that is talking about me. Do you see why the priest tore his clothes in rage 
and weeping, he finally had what he wanted. The charge which carried with it the death penalty of blasphemy. And they think they've got what they wanted. They think they've gotten rid of this little Galilean rebel rouser. But Mark asks the question of us, at what cost? So the one side of the coin is the pursuit of power and religiosity and self-righteousness and human pride and aggrandizement. Mark asks the question of us, will we pursue our power or will we trust God? And if we pursue our own power, to what end? Because pride kills. It, it promises control but never gives it. We end up being controlled by it in our attempt to control others. To put it another way, a way that I heard in youth group in Albuquerque in seventh grade that has never left me, sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will cost you more than you're willing to pay and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. And so the question in Mark's gospel to us who are in Christ by his grace is simply this, that God's kindness would lead us to repentance. And this question, where do do we sort of stand in judgment over God in our lives? Right? Imagine your life is a hundred things and you say, God, you you can mess with all 99 of these, but that one is mine. You know, my identity is in this. My hope and future is in this, my, my life, my reputation, my kids, my, you know, my financial security, my whatever. Mark isn't just saying, oh, look at these horrible religious people that put Jesus on trial. He's saying, look inside yourself for the very ways you do that all the time by not only denying the Messiah, but propping up for the sake of your own power and control, functional saviors. A kangaroo court And then we shift to a flimsy defendant. Peter denies Jesus. This is a second trial. These are two courtroom scenes. Man, Peter falls hard here. Have you ever seen something that's just really hard to watch? Sometimes it's like America's Funniest Home Video. Like a guy trying to climb up a ladder and he falls, then he falls again, he falls again, and like finally falls into a bush and he's okay, but it's like, ugh, cringe. Sometimes it's something that's like really hard to watch. And gut-wrenching. This happened to a lot of us this last Monday night as we were watching the football game, didn't it? Oh, my goodness. You know, I'm on this text thread with my whole family from Buffalo, and it went dark. And uh, wow. When you're brought to the end of yourself, when you stand before the realest realities of the universe, life and death, it's hard to watch. And it's even harder when we consider who Peter was. He was one of the three closest disciples of Jesus. Such a putz. I love him. Oh, he's such a putz. He's just like you and me. He's so bombastic. I will never leave you, Jesus. (laughs) I will never forsake you. I am the Christ. You're the Christ, I mean, but I'm really the Christ. I'll never leave you or forsake you as long as you don't do that to me. He's the Bible answer, man. You know the other 11 disciples were so annoyed with Peter. Jesus asked a question, they're like, just go ahead, Peter, go ahead, go ahead. Answer first. We know you're going to. Peter, the promise maker. Peter, the leader. The rock. Not Peter himself, the rock. Obviously, he's like Plato up in here, but his confession is the rock. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
He's not Judas, right? He's not like Judas. Yet it's Peter who follows Jesus at a distance. And already in that little verse, we have clues about what's going on here. We have clues about our own soul, stuff that the Lord wants to excavate out of us, fear, lack of courage. He follows at a distance because even as he follows, he is following with the presumption of self-preservation. He's going to be safe, close to Jesus, but not too close. Trusting, but not too trusting. Near, but it's dangerous. And again, you know, I just convicted as I was studying this week how many ways in my own life I follow at a distance. I can still see Jesus, so we're still good, right? I'm still justified in front of you. Because if anyone asks, I can still see him, I'm following him. But I'm just comfortably at a distance with some stuff. Well, I figure it out and make sure I have it, you know, properly organized so now there's nothing to be afraid of. That's Peter. And it's a little girl, a little girl. I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old girl. I'm just imagining them. Just a sweet little girl who puts Peter on trial. This is on purpose. It's, it's deep irony. It's deep exposure. It's God using the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The weak things of the world to shame the strong. It's 1 Corinthians 1. Didn't you say, nope, I don't know, don't understand. Here's one of the things that fear does. We see this in the garden with our first parents, the first Adam and his wife Eve. One of the things that fear does is it causes us to, to blame and to, to shirk responsibility. To run or cover or hide. This is Peter, for goodness sake. I don't know him. You little, little girl asking me this question. I don't know what you mean. So guys, this is huge. Because in essence, as Peter has already heard from the mouth of Jesus, this is the number one question that Jesus will ask all of us who claim to follow him at the great white throne of judgment when the end comes. When the sheep and the goats are separated, there will, there will not be the question of how much you went to church or how much money you gave to help us make budget. Or how many Bible studies you attended? Or how many hours you spent in the morning in devotion or prayer? One question. Did you know me? So does that, does that fall on you a little bit different? Peter knows this is the one question. And to protect himself out of his fear, I don't know him. I don't know that guy. I wasn't with him. I don't know that man. I'm not about him. I'm not like him. Uh, he's not my rabbi. I'm not his disciple. Many will say to me in that day, Jesus says in Matthew 25, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that, we did 10 other things. Jesus will say, but depart from me. I never knew you. Peter can't hide. He can't hide before God or even the little girl. She and the bystanders recognize his accent, his face. He's found out in his fear and his failures. He's exposed by a child. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Jesus maintains his integrity at the cost of his life. Peter loses his integrity to save his own skin. And so this scene, as we like to say back in the old skateboarding days, is what we would call gnarly. 
You know, you, you have to feel the weight of this fall upon you in your own fears, in your own control, in your own doubts, in your own denials. He even calls down covenant curses upon himself. That's like making contractual agreements with God. God, if, I, if this isn't true that I don't know that man, kill me now. The sin of his fear has driven him even to the point of his own longing for death. And here we see in us, Peter, oh, the lengths we go to protect ourselves, even in denying our Savior, to hide, to cope, to self-defend, and yet the rooster crows. The rooster crows for Peter. He remembers what Jesus said. The prophecy is fulfilled. Do you see the irony? They got a bag on Jesus' head, punching him, saying, prophesy. And he's remaining silent to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53, while simultaneously the prophecy he's already made about Peter's denial is being fulfilled. Peter weeps because of his guilt. Because he's denied his Lord, his sin, his shame, all of it. He's like Adam standing before a holy God, completely undone. As a Jew, Peter understands that what he has done to his rabbi as a disciple, there is no way back. You guys, there's no way back. I know you're Christians, right? Some of you, most of you probably. You like forgiveness. Very sweet. Forgiveness magnet on my refrigerator. You know, forgiveness on my heart. Cross in my pocket. Bless all of you. There is no way back, humanly speaking, for Peter. And yet, what does Peter do for all of us? He exposes our deepest need. Our deepest need. Can I fail? Because I know I fail. I know I deny. I know I doubt. Can I fail before a holy God and still be loved? Can I be fully exposed, fully known in my brokenness, in my need? In Romans chapter 7, the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing the things I do want to do, I struggle to do. Can all of that be laid bare and can I still be loved? And so finally, the true and just judge. Here's the truth. Jesus came on a mission. This two courtroom scenes, that's why he came. The powers deny, the Peters deny, Jesus comes on purpose. For power lovers and Peter failures, who all, the, all they need to do in the depth of their need is believe. So we have a third trial, a third courtroom, as it were, that we're brought into, the heavenly courtroom that we've already sung about two or three times today. The Lord in Revelation seated on his throne. Notice the Sanhedrin, pride, religious, self-righteous authorities. They look at Jesus and say, not him. Too weak. Peter looks at what happens, full of fear, lacking in courage, and says, not me. They say, not him. Peter says, not me. Jesus says, I am. I am the Son of God, and I am in. I am in it. I am in it for you. I am in it for the ones who I know by name, who I have loved, who I have called. I am the one who will never leave or forsake. Jesus is the king and the true judge, the epitome of true power, 2 Corinthians 12, power made perfect in weakness. This is the gospel of the grace of God. For Peter's, there is true love and true courage in Jesus. You see, right when Peter, I mean, just, man, 
This is why you come to church. <laughs> I mean, I know this meal is amazing up here, but right when Peter is most denying his Lord, right when he is most Judas, Jesus is most willing to stand for him and stand in his place. Jesus is mocked, denied. The sovereign king of the universe is put in the dock on trial so that we can stand. Us, in Christ, forgiven. Jesus stands in our place of condemnation so that we get his place of sonship, inheritance, forgiveness forever. In that sense, we are saved by works. Either our own works which ultimately end in the foolishness of power or the brokenness of fear. We are saved by works, either our works, which do not save at all, or the finished work of God the Son, Jesus Christ. So someday when we stand before the Lord, did you know me? Our claim is not that we were so good at knowing God. Our claim is we knew Jesus, we trusted in him, not in ourselves, and that, that is enough. That is sufficient to save even Peter. Because remember, this isn't the end of Peter's story. It should be but it's not. Uh, Bible teacher and scholar, Paige Benton Brown, is a brilliant teacher, if you have a chance to look her up, Paige Benton Brown, she kind of puts it this way. She said, it's true, you are saved by works, either yours in the first Adam or the finished and completed work of the second Adam, which is acceptable to God. But know this, and this struck me, God does not forgive sin. Come on, bro. Don't be just throwing grenades out in the last minute of the sermon, by which I mean the last 13 minutes. No, I'm kidding. God does not forgive sin. Uh, 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 uh. Just get over it, she says. He can't. He can't just wince at sin or brush it under the rug or just decide, not a big deal. That would be unjust, and we need and want a just God who doesn't just forgive and forget about sin, but deals with it. No, he forgives sinners. God does not forgive sin, he forgives sinners, but at great cost. He forgives sinners because all of the justice that we deserve for our sin has been placed on the pure and spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. Glory and forgiveness can only be combined because in Jesus Christ, they are exchanged. Glory and forgiveness can only be combined because in Jesus Christ, they are exchanged exchanged. We are forgiven as sinners for his sake, for the sake of the one who was not forgiven, but the full condemnation came down upon him. All of our love and lust of power, all of our fear and control, it all fell upon Jesus so that his mission to help us might be in him enough. And that is why he came. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, this contrast between the religious leaders and and Jesus and Peter. I pray, Lord, in your mercy, you'd help us to be seen, uh, help us to be exposed, (laughs) even undone if that's necessary, in our pride, our striving, our, our seeking to save ourselves, control, power. We all do it, Lord. I had to come in here and hide behind masks and false selves. We all do it. And we're all like Peter. In the right circumstances, so full of fear. 
so full of self-preservation strategies. And yet you take both sides of that atom coin, you expose them fully, and then you put in its place the finished work, the new, the new gold and jewels and riches and inheritance of the second Adam. And that is why we come to feast at this table, Lord, because it is finished. Everything is fulfilled in you. And so we can come by faith. All we need is need. We come so needy and by faith and we can come to this table knowing that we've done the kangaroo court, we've done the denial, but you are the true and just judge and you have taken the punishment we deserve. You have stood in our place and you have risen from the dead to conquer death so that now by sending your spirit, you might draw us here every week to unite us to your promises. Would you do that as we come by faith to this table, we pray in Christ's name, amen.